All right, I'm going to pray. God, I want to thank you for your grace and your mercy and for your word, and thank you that you've caused it to be written. Thank you that this word is, is relevant to us, and it teaches us, and it leads us, and points us to you. It points us to Jesus. It points us to your plan in the world. Lord, I pray this morning that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So, you know, as I'm thinking about, you know, what's the next preaching series book that I was going to do, I've always wanted to do the book of Colossians. And for whatever reason, I've grown to learn that sometimes I want to do something and the Lord's like, well, no, I'd rather have you do this. And, you know, I try to make my plea, well, I think it would be better if I did this. And he says, oh, no, no, Dennis, I think you should do this. And we, so we go back and forth, and then I'll begin to write what I want to write. And I'll get to, like, and go, wow, this is really terrible. Maybe I should go back and do what I feel the Lord really wants me to do, or what I've heard him. And so I've, I've wanted to do Colossians for a long time, and for whatever reason... It just didn't feel like the right time. And so I sat down on Wednesday and I said, God, I want to do Colossians. When, when, when. And I just felt him go, okay, go ahead. What's stopping you? You know, like, hello. And so that's where we're going to spend the next, I don't know how long, weeks in. Uh, I I don't plan well in advance sermons. I kind of sit down and write and see what comes out. And then we just go for it from there. Uh, So that's where we're going to be, the book of Colossians. I would encourage you over the next weeks to read it on your own, to get a flavor of kind of what Paul is talking about in the beginning as he lays out his thankfulness for the way the church is living. Then they talk about, he talks about Christ and who Christ is, and then what that actually looks like, again, in the way that we're supposed to live the reality of who Christ is. So without further ado, Wes, can you put that first slide up there? Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. You know, and and this is just kind of the the intro to the letter. This is kind of Paul's standard spiel. You know, he wants to just kind of lay it out there. But man, there is so much going on in these just these are just two verses there's so much going on in these two verses that we're just going to have to camp out here for a while so right out of the gate he wants them to know who is writing the letter paul an apostle of christ jesus it's important for him to just kind of tell the people of this church who they are receiving this letter from because paul has never visited this church Paul did not plant this church. He only knows about, from what we can gather from the scriptures, about two people that come from this church. So they have no idea who he is. And he wants to make sure they understand and they have a general feel for who he is. That he is a man who has been called by Christ to to represent the mysteries and the faith of who Christ is. He almost, it's almost like he's a, he's a foundational player in the beginning of the church. And he wants to make sure that they know who is writing them this letter. And he uses the term Christ Jesus. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. And that's, that's interesting. It may not be interesting to you, but to me, it's interesting. Because that's, Paul usually doesn't use that term very often. He uses Jesus, he'll use Christ, but, but he's setting something up in the first line. See, in Colossae, the, the, there's a very large population of Jewish people. 
And so there's a population of Jewish people that are coming to know Jesus as the Messiah, along with Gentiles. And what Paul is doing, he is reaching back into history with just that, those two words, Christ Jesus, an apostle of Christ Jesus. He's reaching back into God's history to let the people know that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, The son of God is in the line of David. David the king. When God promised that that somebody from David's line would sit on the throne forever, Paul is reaching back into that story and into that history to say that the Old Testament is fulfilled through Jesus. That the Messiah that was spoken about And the Old Testament is Jesus Christ. He's reminding the Jewish Christians. He's reminding the Gentile Christians that the roots of our faith begin in the Old Testament. And so what does that mean for us is that we we just can't gloss over the chunky pages in the beginning of the book. You can fudge the names if you can't pronounce them and use Fred and Dave and Ryan. I mean, that's fine. God doesn't mind that. But you can't, you can't just gloss over the beginning because their beginning is it's our beginning. And those stories hold significance. And those stories hold meaning for us today, just like they did for those people thousands of years ago. And as they unfold, historical Historical stories. I don't believe that they're just made up fairy tales to teach us some moral point. These are things that happen as they unfold. They all point to God's redemptive plan. Who is Jesus Christ? You see, they're not just a moralistic story to teach us how to live our lives. I mean, they do hold truths to the way we're to live. They do hold truths that point us to God and to faith. But, But if we just look at it from, this is to teach me a lesson in my life, that means we've made the Bible all about us. That God wrote this Bible and it's all about us. And that's not the case. The Bible was written... For God to reveal himself to us. And yes, we get nuggets of how to live our life. But the main crux, the main direction of all of these pages is to point to God and what he's doing and what he's revealing about himself to his people. Let me, let me give you an example of this. It's, it's, an, it's a common story that most people know. And it's getting a lot of play right now in the... In the um, the reformed movement of theology. Now, I kind of agree a little bit on what they say, but I don't agree with everything that they kind of point to in this story. So instead of comparing my thoughts to their thoughts, because those people are wicked smart, and I just think I'm right. And, and so um, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to share with you my thoughts and what God has revealed to me. And it's the story of David and Goliath. It's a very common story. Even people sometimes who don't read the Bible know the story of David and Goliath. 
Some of you are like going way back to the flannel graph days where you had the, and you're sticking David on there and he's got the rocks, right? Remember, remember that clay animation cartoon, Davy? And you're like, Gee, Davy, you know, and, and, and my, you know, and, and it's, I, that's all I remember. And, and something to do with my mom's not going to like that, Davy. And, and so that's not the story of David and Goliath. That's just something weird. Um, but the story of David and Goliath is a very popular story. But see, we tend to look at that story through just one single lens. And it's the self-help lens. It's the God-help lens. And we make, in the story, we make David ourselves. We're David. And David, as you know, he goes out to slay the giant. He's going to fight the giant Goliath. And so we're David, and the giant is any other thing in our life that we need to overcome. It could be a trial, some type of tribulation in your life. It could be sin in your life, something that you need to get a hold of, something that you need some victory over. David is us. Goliath is whatever Goliath is. Goliath is. And so the story goes that David trusted in God. He had faith. Oh, well, this Philistine, he's not going to mock my God. And David, he goes out there, right? And he, and he grabs the, the five smooth stones, puts one in the sling. And, whoop. and I love the way that story says it sinks into his head. I wonder what that looks like. I mean, like it sinks into his head. And David slays the giant. And so we stand there and say, well, if I'm David, and all I have to do is put my faith in God, and I can go out there and I can overcome every single thing in my life. If I just put my faith in God, then I will win all of the battles that I am faced. I will overcome all of the things that I need to overcome. And, and that's not necessarily a bad attitude to have. That if you have faith in God, that you can, you can do stuff. Maybe stuff that you didn't think you can do, but you can actually do stuff. But see, we can't just look at the story from that perspective. Yes, God uses the weak to shame the strong. It's true that God rescues and God saves. God saves in the physical. God saves. And the story should be an encouragement to us. And the story should encourage us to, to focus on God. But I need to keep it real. I mean, at least in my life, I have found sometimes the giant wins. <laughs> sometimes I rush out there. I got my stones, and I throw them, and I miss. Sometimes they bounce off, and they hit me. Sometimes in my life, the giant has won. Maybe, maybe some of you can relate to that, that the giant has won. And you come against it with all of the faith that you can muster, and, and, and just believing God is going to just give you victory over this thing. 100%. There's not a doubt in your mind. And the giant wins. I mean, that's, that's just life. We can't run away from that truth. Maybe the giant was your marriage or an addiction or that sin again or whatever it was. But it, he didn't win. I've spoken to many, many people. That's their reality. 
That's their truth. The giant is one. Just it feels that way. God didn't come through. Nothing, nothing sunk into the giant's head, and the giant was not slain. And you see, if we look through that story with the lens of just, I'm David, and the giant is whatever, Goliath is whoever or whatever, all of a sudden God doesn't come through, like in the story. What now? What now? We start to lose faith and hope in God. We start to get discouraged. Like he doesn't even love me. Or maybe you just go, you know what? It is just a dumb children's story. It's not. You see, that story is part of a big picture of what God is trying to paint. That story is just one story in the whole story of God's redemptive plan for everything. A plan that's been happening since the beginning of recorded history. God has been revealing this plan. He's been getting involved with people because they, we, we can't fix ourselves. We cannot redeem ourselves. It's been that way from the garden. Remember the story, Adam and Eve, they eat from the tree. They recognize they're naked. They feel shame. They hide. God says, hey, who told you you're naked? Well, you know, we ate from the tree. Ugh. And then he, he lists out judgment upon them. It's going to be hard. It's going to be even harder. Good luck. And then it says this. That God made clothes for them out of animal skin and covered them. See, from the very beginning, God has been taking away our shame. God has been taking away and healing our shame. He did it through the sacrifice of animals. There's always been a sacrifice to remove the shame of humanity. You see, that's God's plan of redemption from day one. It's a story that's been playing out throughout history. Throughout all of history. And so this book is not just a a bestseller on Oprah's reading list for self-help and getting your life together. This book ultimately is the revelation of the Lord of all creation. And it's revealing his redemptive plan on a macro level for all of humanity. And if we can get a hold of that, then those what seemingly feel like failures, when things don't go our way, they don't seem to sting maybe as bad. I'm not taking away, I'm not minimizing anybody's pain who has come across the giant and has lost. But I'm saying it's not because God doesn't love you, that God doesn't care, that God is not involved, that God doesn't care to be involved. It's life. You see, the Bible is more about God than it is about us. The scriptures are more about him and less about us. And so God's plan continues. He continues to reveal his redemption to pointing to the Messiah that the Messiah is going to come. He's the major player. His first coming initiates. His second coming will culminate. One day, it's going to be finished. 
and there will be no more pain or suffering or death or tears or sickness. One day, that's the God's promise. And the Messiah that he's talking about throughout all of these pages is Jesus Christ, the promised one. And Paul wants his readers to know, to understand that it has been God's plan all along to bring the Messiah to this point to save humanity. And this Messiah, Jesus Christ, Paul, and his apostle is an apostle. He is one who is sent, not by his own will, but by the will of God himself. Paul was called to follow Jesus. Remember his story. He's walking on the road, right? He's minding his own business. He's persecuting the church. He's thumping people. He's, he's arresting people. And all of a sudden, the light and, then, and this voice, Paul, or Saul, Saul, why are you messing with me? My version, but you know, you get the drift. He has this dramatic experience. He was on his way to becoming a Pharisee of Pharisees. He came from the right lineage. He was going to be the man. And God steps in and calls him and changes everything. And now Paul finds himself in God's redemptive plan. That's been taking place forever. And now he is a player in the plan of God to bring it all back together again. And then he says, he's writing to, he says, to God's holy people. He's with his brother Timothy, blah, blah. To God's holy people, faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. To God's holy people, faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. The way it's kind of worded in the original language, he feels very close to these people. People that he's never met. He's never visited this church. He feel, the way it's worded, it's almost like Colossae is his second home. He loves them. He's affectionate towards them. He feels, he feels intimate towards them. And he finds them also part of God's plan. They have been called into God's redemptive mission in the world because they are brothers and sisters in Christ. Not because of something they've done. Not because of the good work they've done. Because they are brothers and sisters in Christ. They belong to him. He is the originator of this plan. He is the ruler of this new age of redemption. He was brought forth by his obedience, even to the cross, and by the power of his resurrection. Paul, in some way here, is confirming that the people he's writing this letter to, and I believe us, those of us who are in Christ, we, we are spiritually now located in, in something that's new, a new environment, a new spirituality, a new reality. It's, it's, and it's no small new thing. It's a complete, complete reorientation of who, from who we were to who we are. It's something new. It's something amazing. That they, that we, could be part of something bigger than ourselves. Part of God's redemptive story that continues to play out. See, it's not about us. It's about him. 
It's always been about what God is doing in spite of us. And yet, it's what God is doing through us. And so we too, as we are in Christ, we have become part of that plan as individuals and as a church. We've become part of God's redemptive mission, redemptive history. We, we share the Messiah's work. And it's to those people, and I believe to us, that Paul extends grace and peace. Grace. You know, our position before him is all about him and his unmerited favor to us. That's grace. And peace is grace working its way out that we can know spiritual and physical well-being. Paul begins his letter, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. And then he continues on. Next slide, Wes. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all of God's people the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel. So he's going to continue to speak directly to this church, to these people. And he's tell, he begins to tell them, I'm always thanking God for you. I'm always thanking the God of our, the Father of our Lord Jesus. And I, I think... I think the way it's, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think what he's trying to do here, I believe what he's trying to do here. See, really, very soon, he's going to be talking a lot about Christ. It's going to be a very Christ-centric letter. And I believe what he's trying to establish is that God and Jesus, they can't be separated out. You can't just have one without the other. That God and Jesus are, they're just, they're the single units They are the one person along with the Holy Spirit. He wants to make sure that that they understand that Jesus is anchored in who God is and what God is doing in the world. And he says, "I, I thank God for you. Paul is praying for this church. And and there's plural. Maybe it could be Timothy. We were really not sure. We know that Paul had a posse. He ran with a bunch of folks. He says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when we, when we pray for you, he's actually praying for a church that he doesn't even know the people in. He's praying for a church that he didn't plant. He's praying for a ch- plant. He didn't, he's praying for a church that he's never visited. And, and they, I get the sense that there's a lot of praying going on. We always thank God for you. And so I thought to myself, self, how often do you do that? Pray for other churches. And then I thought, I don't have time for that. But then I thought, no, wait, wait, I'm not that bad. I, I have friends who are pastors. 
And, and some of those churches that I have friends that are pastors in, they, they, they've gone through difficult times. In fact, one, um, they're, they're still continuing to, to go through a difficult time. I've prayed for them. And I thought, well, because I know them. They're, they're my friends. Like we go out to lunch and stuff, and they buy me lunch. That's, that's part of friendship. And I know some of the people that were in the church, and I prayed for them. But for other churches? I don't have any other connection with other churches other than that I know that there's Christians in town because they go to other churches. They might dress funny in suits. But I don't know what's going on with them. I don't know what they're doing. I don't pray for the good things that might be taking place there, for the good things that the people might be doing there. I don't even know what those are. And you know what? They don't even know what's, what's going on with us. It's like nine churches in Cheshire. I couldn't even tell you all the pastors' names. I couldn't even tell you half of the pastors' names. I am 100% guilty of not even thinking about concerning myself with other churches, about praying for them. And man, you know, I'm a, I'm a, hey, we're all on the same team type of guy too. And yet I don't know. And here, Paul, we always thank God for you and we pray for you. So convicted with that. I don't even know what to do with it yet. Like fully, I was like, okay, God, let this conviction go because I don't want anything to do with that. Don't convict me of that. I try to say it with guilt. and There is no guilt in Christ Jesus. And so this church that's being prayed for by Paul and his buddies, this church that he has, is thanking God for, they've made a name for themselves. They have a reputation, this church. They have a reputation with God. They have a reputation with other believers. And I believe that if that's the case, they have to have a reputation outside of their community. Other churches have heard about them. Because it says that they, they, the, the love that they have for all of God's people, not just the ones cloistered in their building, but all of God's people. There's a valley that, that Colossae was part of, and there's all, all kinds of churches that were taking place there. And they have a reputation that I want for our church. I'm jealous of them. And it's, it's not them being all slick and they got all the cool bells and whistles. It's not because, you know, nationally famous speakers come by and they do conferences at their church and they speak. It's not because the cool Christian bands, I don't know if they had cool Christian bands in the first century, but anyway, I mean, if they did, they weren't stopping by and they weren't playing their music. It wasn't because they had a kicking building with a good sound system and an awesome, awesome worship team. It was for three reasons that they had a reputation for. Because of the faith, their faith in Jesus Christ, the love that they have for all God's people and the hope that comes from the gospel. They were known for their faith in Jesus Christ 
the love that they had for all of God's people and the hope that they had in the gospel. Faith. It's got to be first and foremost. Paul lists it first. See, without faith, we're not Christian. Without faith in Christ, we, we can't follow Jesus. We have to begin with faith. Faith is the avenue in which the grace of God is poured out on his people. And this is just not, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus kind of faith. This is more of, a, of an environment that they have created in their community where faith is living itself out. It's playing itself out every single day. Because they have a reputation for it. It's not a hit or miss. It's not a once in a while thing. Paul has heard about it. Others have heard about it. Reports are coming from there to others about their faith. You see, these people seem to be living their lives under the lordship of Jesus Christ and everything that entails. They are living under the lordship Jesus Christ. And I ask me, how, how am I doing? <laughs> I like to think I'm doing all right, but sometimes the closer I get to God, the farther I feel I'm away from him. How are we doing as a church? Are we under the lordship of Jesus Christ? I mean, it's a good bar to look at for us. Not that we, not that we do things so that people can know about us and hear about us. I mean, we started off with a sign at our first place and then you know and then we just we'd have a sign for years so i'm not really big into advertising or we don't do things so people will know about us but man to be known for our faith and let that seep out and leak out that's pretty cool i want our church to have that reputation and a faith that travels to the ears of other people is a faith that works itself out with the way the community is doing life, with the way the community is living, with the way the community is loving. It says here that they loved all God's people, all of God's people. It means not just all of you loving on each other. It means all of God's people. It means loving the church that's right next door to us. It means loving the church that's on East Johnson Road. It's about loving the church on Main Street. It's about loving all of God's people. Loving the church on Route 70. It's about loving all of God's people. This is about, this is about a concern and it's, and it's about a, a, a real caring for God's people. All of them Prayer in action, faith in action. See, the way that these people were doing life was getting out. The way these people were doing life, it was getting out. People noticed their faith in Christ. People noticed how they loved each other. Other communities. You see, back then, communities of faith, they weren't islands in and of themselves. They actually helped each other back then. Different churches. <gasps> Imagine that. Churches coming together and helping each other and praying for each other and praying with each other. You're all looking at me like, wow, we've never heard of such a thing. And it's true. We, we, don't, we don't roll that way now. How have we missed the target 
How have we, how have we strayed so far from the path that Jesus set for us? Church, capital C. I've begun to look this past week. I don't know what to do. I've begun to look at ways. How do we get connected with other churches? I mean, we've got a little reputation a couple, among a couple churches. Not favorable, but that's okay. It's, it's a reputation, you know. We're that rogue church that came in the Cheshire, you know. How dare you bring another church in the Cheshire? But that's okay. I'm good with that. But how do we, how do we say, you know, I'm not such a bad guy. I, I hear there's a clergy association in Cheshire. Who knew? I try to find them online. They don't have a website. First thing I'm going to do when I'm on the clergy association, get a website. Get a phone number. I'm a little nervous about that. I don't, and, and, and this is just my bias. This is just probably some pride or arrogance, but I don't play, I don't play old school well. And I'm worried I'm going to walk into a group of old guys and go, I'm here. Maybe I'll keep my sleeves down for the first meeting. I don't know. But how do we get connected in order to be able to pray and to know what's going on in other church communities and pray for them? What if we had, I was thinking, what if we had like a prayer chain that all the churches in Cheshire were on? Holy smokes. What a novel idea. Churches praying together? We don't. At least I don't know of one. And so this faith and this love, it finds itself anchored in hope. It finds itself anchored in a hope that points to an unseen future. And maybe we can use ideas like salvation. Maybe we can use ideas like redemption and uh, the resurrection of the dead and eternal life and the glory of God being revealed in all its fullness. This, This hope of the future. Hope that we talked about it during Advent, remember? A whole sermon, a whole teaching on the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. That I hope that we all have that hope. Because it's all of those things our full salvation, redemption, eternal life, resurrection of the dead the revealing of the glory of God in all its fullness, those things, those things are stored up for us in heaven right now. They are already there and they're waiting for us. And you could take that to the bank. The Colossians are being assured and we are that everything that we hope for in the context of Jesus Christ, is already there. It's in the heavenly realms where nothing can touch it. No power can get a hold of it and destroy it. Not human, not anything. It is is safe in the hands of God. And one day it will be fully revealed when Christ himself is revealed again. But see, this this hope works its way out in our daily lives. It works its way out in our faith. It works its way out in the way that we love each other. It just works its way out when we smile because, you know what? It's hitting the fan. Things are not going well. The giant wins. But I have hope. My hope is in Christ. 
this is, this is nothing new. This is nothing new. It was nothing new to them. It's, it's nothing new to us. It's the gospel of hope. It's what, it's what we know about Christ. I guess what I've read, what I've studied about this letter is that there were people coming in and they were trying to get the people to turn away from the hope they had in Christ and hope in other things, maybe things that weren't of Christ, maybe things of different faith, maybe things that uh, were, were of the world. It was calling them in, to hope in, in something else besides the gospel that they, were, that they knew, that they were, they were told. And maybe we can relate to that same thing in our day, in our age. We're called to put our hope in our 401k, in our retirement plan, in the businesses that, 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 we, do, that, we, that we work for. We hope in our politicians. Uh, we hope in our politicians that they're going to get it right. Let me say it again. Uh, and, they, you know, and, and we hope in, in big business. We hope in the banks. We hope in the whatever it is. The hope of the gospel is one thing. One thing only. You ready? Jesus. Period. It's Christ and Christ alone. Jesus plus nothing. That's our hope. That's the gospel. Maybe, all right, let me just throw this out there. Maybe as churches, church capital C, and including us, Maybe we're not known for our faith and love because we actually hope in the wrong thing. I know we wouldn't admit to that. Nobody likes to admit that. We don't like being truthful in church. There's no place for that. But maybe we hope in the wrong thing. I'm talking about church people here. Maybe we've got caught up with what the world says we need to do, we have to do. This is how you're going to get ahead. This is how you're going to be comfortable in life. This is the next new thing. This is the next big thing. And we put our hope in those things. Maybe we put our hope in the work that we do, the work that we feverishly trying to perform so we can just get a little piece of the American pie. And that's what we hope in. But it's work that just ends up, it has no meaning there's no eternal value to the work that we're just trying to do. And we go and we go. We're like the, 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 the gerbil in the wheel. And we just spin that wheel over and over and over and over. Maybe those are the things that we're really hoping for. We don't want to admit it. No, my hope is in Jesus. But your life says something different. I've done, um, I've done many, many funerals over the years. Uh, more than I ever thought I would ever do as a pastor. And uh, I've heard many, many stories about the person who has died and uh, eulogies and times of sharing. And they reflect, those stories, they reflect very, very little on what the person did for their job, how much money they had in their bank account, how they climbed the corporate ladder, how many hours they dedicated to work. They, don't, they very seldom speak about how big their house was and how nice their car was and all of the cool toys that they were able to acquire. I hear, I hear, I've heard very, very few stories at all of the funerals I've done and all of the funerals that I have gone to. 
about that. But when people speak about them, they speak about how that person treated others, how they loved other people. And in the Christian, the, the funerals that I've done for, for I don't want to say evangelical, church-filling Christians, they talk about their faith and how that faith worked its way into their lives and how that faith affected other people. Maria Caviello's mom, who passed away at Christmas Eve, she's a woman who is 91, 90 years old. I sat with her for a couple hours once at their house, and just I love to, I love to ask questions in the older generation and just to hear her tell stories. And she told me all of these stories about um, her husband and her, they owned a shopping uh, shopping store, a you know, grocery store, and all these other things. I sat for hours. That's the only real thing I remember of the story, of the stories that she told me. But you know what I remember? And you know what I will take with me? Is when she looked at me and she said, you know this operation that I'm having? And I said this a few weeks ago. She said, you know that operation I'm having? Because if, if it works, I win. I'll be healthy. I'll be able to walk around. I'll feel better. And if it doesn't work, if I don't make it, I win because I go see Jesus. I remember that woman's faith. None of the cool stories. She had some cool stories. Faith, love, hope. It's like the trifecta of the Christian life. I'm going to put my bet on those. You know, I, I hope... I hope someday that's the way I'll be remembered. And maybe a little crazy. I like that one too. Faith, love, and hope. That's what I want for our church. That's what I want our church to be known as. And that everything would come from that place. In my readings the last couple days, I was reading through Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 3. I want to leave you with this. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, it says this, Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. Faith. Love, hope. Pray. So, Lord, I want to thank you for your grace. Just thank you for this table. This table that symbolizes those three things. Lord, I want to thank you that we can come to this table in the remembrance of Jesus Christ who taught us those things. That this is love. That this is faithfulness to the Father. And in this table we find our hope.
table is open to those who have put their faith and their hope in Christ. I encourage you as you come to think about those things in your life. Take the elements and then head back to your seat. And as it is our tradition, let's take them together.